we're picking up uh, a letter to, it's actually the, 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 the newest of the 66 books in the Bible, this was the last one written. It's the newest one we have. They speculate it was written around 100 AD by the Apostle John. And um, this is an amazing letter. It's an amazing epistle. And so we're going to undertake the study of that. It's called 1 John. It's not the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's not any of those. It's all the way almost towards the book of Revelation. Uh, small little letter. There's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to start in 1st John. And fellas, if you'll pass out the scriptures, if you don't have a Bible, you need one. Raise your hand. They'll give it to you. You're welcome to keep it. Um, otherwise, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1st John. 1st John. And at Calvary Chapel, we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, and we sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. So we're in 1st John 1. 1st John 1. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which you have seen and heard, We declare to you that you also, you also, all you guys here, you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's, the whole, uh, that's God's detergent. 1 John 1, 9, coming up here. Uh, 1 John 1, 9, coming up here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's God's detergent. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. That's the first chapter. Father, would you bless the study of your word? We know it's alive. Cause us to come alive to it. Lord, I know there's folks here for the first time, probably never even opened a Bible, don't even know where First John is, but that's irrelevant. God, you knew exactly where we'd be when they got here. And you love them and you've been planning this for their whole life. And so, Lord, would you calm and quiet their heart and just settle them and let them just listen. Remove any preconceived ideas and just let them settle down. And I just pray your peace, which surpasses all understanding, would guard their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. Speak now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. Would you turn to um, two places in the Scriptures? One is Mark chapter 3. It goes in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn to Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Mark 3, Luke 9. Mark 3, Luke 9. Mark 3, Luke 9. I love the sound of pages turning, although in this age of iPads and cell phones, and you don't hear the turning anymore. It just looks like people are playing video games. <laughs> Some of you are old school. Mark 3, Luke 9. Um, 
I want to tell you a little bit about the author of this epistle. It was written in 100 A.D., approximately 100 A.D. Jesus died approximately 33 A.D., and so this book is almost 50 years written after the death of Christ, over 50 years after the death of Christ. It was written, it was written by the last living apostle, the last living apostle, and it was John. Um, John died of old age. He was in his 90s, which back then he didn't live to 90, but he did. They actually tried to boil him alive. He survived that. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, where he lived out his life. But this epistle was written in a town called Ephesus, which is today modern-day Kusadasi, which is in Turkey. Uh, they've actually, um, it's some of the most beautiful ruins you can imagine in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. It used to be a port city, but as the soot of the river started to build up, uh, the water is way down. And so it seems like Ephesus is an inland city, but it used to be a port city where merchants would come and sailors and ply their trade. And it was a large city, had a library, it was, had a big amphitheater, it was a beautiful city. I've been there. It's stunning. Uh, interesting, in the library and kind of the men's area, there was an underground passageway over to the brothels. Not many things change. And, um, and so the city was really licentious and filled with sexual immorality. And it was, it was, a, it was a San Francisco of its day, of Port City, you know. And it was, it was just a, a city that was filled with intellectualism. They had Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and, and the library itself. And, and they had these folks there called Gnostics. Uh, if you've ever heard the word agnostic, it means one without knowledge. So if you call yourself an agnostic, you're saying, I, I, I don't have knowledge of God. Um, I know he's there, but I don't know him. And that's a fair statement. And at times, most Christians are agnostics because we come up against something where we don't fully understand why God's doing that. I remember as a sheriff's chaplain walking into a home and then the people in the home handing me their dead baby and saying, fix it. And they were, a Buddha, or they were a Hindu family, and they're saying, fix it, help us. And I'm holding this dead baby in my arms, and I'm thinking, God, I don't understand you. I don't know you. I don't get you. I was an agnostic at that point. I was a Christian, but I was still an agnostic. I didn't understand his ways. Uh, he says, all things work together for good with those who love the Lord and called according to his purpose. I'm holding this dead baby. I'm saying, I don't know how you're going to get yourself out of this mess. You've got a problem on your hands, Lord. And amazingly, he did work through that, and I was, I was blown away by how he pulled it off. And God does that. He never ceases to amaze me. But there are times in my Christian walk where I don't get him. You think about the book of Job. That's the oldest book in the Bible. It precedes uh, the book of Genesis. It was actually written between Genesis 11 and 12. And what's the book of Job? It begins with Job, the most righteous man on the earth and the wealthiest man in the east. And within a matter of moments, because Satan came to the Lord and said, the reason why Job serves you is because he's rich and he's got a big family and he's got super health. He said, take away his wealth and his riches and his family, and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, do that, but don't hurt him. Next thing you know, his business is destroyed, his family's killed, all within a day. And Job says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Satan's like, man, I hate this guy. So he comes back to the Lord, and he says, the reason why he's still praising you is because he has his health. He says, okay, go at his health, but don't kill him. So from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, he's covered in shingles. If you've ever had shingles, you know how awful it is, just boils. He's now in the town dump, absolutely broke. His wife is saying, curse God and die. He's got a broken piece of pottery shard. He's scraping the boils on his body just to bring some sort of relief. And the whole book is just awful like that. And you look at that and you think, God, I don't get you. Even Job is sitting there going, I don't understand you, God. He asked God all these questions. 
And he's got a series of questions. And what's interesting, we read the book and we see it. We're like in a trial balloon up above the Rose Parade. We see the beginning and the end and all points in between. But for Job, he could only see one float at a time as it's going by on Colorado Boulevard. We see everything. Job didn't. When Job asked all the questions, guess what? At the end of the book, he never got an answer to a single one of his questions. And not only that, God asked him over 70 questions that he didn't have an answer to. Where Job just said, I, I don't, I, you're, I'm sorry. I, you're bigger than me. And I get it and I worship you. And then God restored everything to Job after that. So there's going to be times in your life where it's going to be overwhelming. You're not going to get God. And let me just say this to you. For those of you who gave God a litmus test and say, do this and I'll worship you. And he didn't do that. And you're a little upset. I think of Ted Turner. He said, God, would you heal my brother? And his brother died. And he said, God didn't do what I asked. So I I don't believe I give up. God's not a cosmic genie in the sky. He holds the heavens in the span of his hands. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. You're not going to get him. And if you could explain God, he'd only be as big as your brain. And I got news as I'm looking around the room. That's not a God I'd want to worship. Right? He's going to baffle you at times. He's not going to make sense. You're going to be an agnostic. And that's okay to be an agnostic. But be patient. He'll show you. What you don't know about God, fall back on what you do know. What you don't know about God, fall back on what you do know. That all things work together for good. And, And they do in time. I'll give you another example. Tim Maddox, our missionary in Cyprus... Um, they left Russia, came here, lived with us for over a year. Uh, their daughter, Abigail, had been trained in Russia under a ballet dancer and ended up at the California Dance Academy. She was doing great. She had a great role in the Nutcracker, and she's, she's just a phenom of a dancer, sweet little girl. Actually got my daughter, Molly, into dancing. But um, Tim Maddox, uh, he, was a, he was a young boy. I think he was 11 or 12, maybe 13 years of age, when his father, Matt Maddox, who was one of the finest dancers in the world, uh, he was actually in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and he danced with Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland, a bunch of... He left Tim's mother and took off with another showgirl and moved to France. And, and Tim and his two brothers were with the mom. The mom ended up contracting cancer. She died. The boys were farmed off to different families. Tim ended up melting down in his teenage years, got addicted to heroin, ended up in prison with hepatitis, um, and in prison uh, received the Lord. Started working in an old age home, ministering to old folks, and finally the church invited him to go on a mission trip to Russia. He went there. Darlene Maddox was working in some nightclub because she was a single mom with an abusive husband that she had to leave so she wouldn't be killed, and she found a ministry that would allow a woman to travel to Russia, even with a daughter, and so she went with CCCPM, which was a Calvary Chapel mission. She started working as the house mom in the college there. Tim and Darlene met. They married. Uh, they started Calvary Chapel Kirshaskaya, planted a church there, turned it over to nationals, moved back to be with us in a trial in their life. And here they were, they were ministering, and Abigail started dancing at the California Dance Academy, started just skyrocketing, doing great. <clears throat> and then Tim and Darlene said, we're supposed to go to Cyprus, and uh, God's calling us there. Well, all the people at the California Dance Academy, a lot of the mothers are going, how could you do this to your daughter? What kind of people are you? This is ridiculous. You're, you don't even think about your daughter. You're pulling her out. There's no dancing in Cyprus, and there wasn't. There was no ballet in, in Cyprus. We're thinking, well, we can send videos over there. She could train with videos, and like that's going to go places. And, and, but Abigail just said, if this is where my parents are going, I'm going with them. And off they went to Cyprus. And she started struggling in her dance. Well, there was one guy by the name of Lambros 
who wanted to start uh, a program in Limassol, one of the major cities in Cyprus, and he had gotten um, some funds from the state of Cyprus and also the city of Limassol to start a, a ballet company. And uh, he was the finest dancer in all of Cyprus. He had danced in the London Ballet, the Royal Ballet, and he was an amazing dancer, principal dancer. And uh, he had started this, and they were doing tryouts. And, um, and so Abigail, not being a citizen of Cyprus, went to the tryouts. She didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of, you know, getting in, and let alone getting a scholarship. But she dances, and, and uh, Lambros is looking at the list and says, your name is Maddox, M-A-T-T-O-X. She says, yes. She says, I know a Matt Maddox. She says, that's my grandpa. He looks, he says, Matt Maddox is your grandpa? And Abigail says, yes. He says, you know, I was 13 years old when I wanted to be a dancer, and nobody starts at 13. No, no, I'm sorry, he was 16. He said, I want to be a ballet dancer. Nobody starts at 16. You start when you're very young. And so I moved to England to pursue dance, and every studio kicked me out except for one man, Matt Maddox, and he took me under his wing and taught me everything. And I danced for the London Royal Ballet. He says, your grandpa gave me my start. And she said, he said, you're not the best, but I'm going to give you a scholarship. And now she's dancing all over the place and doing great. And then through that, Tim was able to call his father, be reconciled. He had a chance to lead his dad to the Lord. Um, and his dad died this last year knowing the Lord and reconciled to his son. All things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, Tim, at 13 years of age, or Tim in a prison after heroin addiction, is wondering, God, where are you? It's a good question, but he's still there. He knows how to work things together for good. He knows how to bring us to the end of ourselves. When we're reduced to a minimum, God's ready to pour in a maximum. God's waiting for us to get to a place where we need him. And we're so prideful we don't. Well, the Apostle John is dealing with a group of people who weren't agnostics. This group of people were known as Gnostics. They were too smart for God. The Gnostics had taken this, this, this spiritual pursuit to an intellectual level. And, and, you know, many people say there's many ways to God, and I found him through Buddha or, or Muhammad or Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh or, you know, just going through the litany of, of all the different religions in the world. And, uh, well, I found him through Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, and we've risen to an intellectual level of spiritual ascent. And, and, and all the golden rules, if you read all the religious writers, all the things that you find in the New Testament are found in all these other religious writings. They're all there. And that's true. They are. They are. They're found there. You can find the negative side of the golden rule in almost every religion in the world. And that's true. And so John's dealing with a group of people who are saying, well, it's the, at the ascent of knowledge, this intellectual pursuit that we're somehow trying to make Christianity acceptable in, in, in the, the intellectual realm. And John, at 90 years of age, is looking at a church that is losing its significance and its authority and it's being inundated by the immorality of Ephesus. And he's now speaking to this church. And he writes this epistle to try to fire him up. I loved Ephesus when I went there. It touched me deeply. I want to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, this epistle, this letter was written in the city of Ephesus. And I've been to Ephesus. And I went there because my mother was living with a woman. My mom and dad was, were living with a woman sharing uh, uh, the expenses of a house um, with a woman named Dr. Alice Crilly, who traveled the world three times. And uh, Dr. Crilly, my, my father was in the throes of Alzheimer's, still living, and my mom was caring for him and caring for Alice, who was somewhat feeble. 
And, um, and, and, and Dr. Crilly had a heart for my mom and said, you know, Louise, I, I, I think before Roy is too advanced in the Alzheimer's, maybe we should take a trip to the Mediterranean, the footsteps of Paul, to pursue our faith in a greater capacity and go to Rome. My mom's a Catholic. And go to Rome and see these things. And my mom was thrilled about the idea and traveling with dad. And, you know, having an Alzheimer's spouse is quite a burden, but to travel would be good. And so Dr. Crilly said, Rob, you and Michelle come because we're going to need help. And I'm like, great, I get to be attendants. <laughs> and the old people are like children, you just can't spank them. And I'm like, oh, okay. So no offense to some of you who are older. <laughs> you know it's true. You push it too, don't you? So she invites us to go over. Well, Dr. Crilly, as the trip approaches, she just says, you know, physically, I don't think I can endure this. And so she says, I'm not going to go. I'm going to transfer my trip to your daughter, your oldest daughter, Molly. So Molly got to go. Now, Dr. Crilly doesn't do anything halfway. Uh, The trip was first class on a cruise, stopping at these sites, and the flight over, business class. I'd never done that before, and it spoiled me, and now when I'm in coach, I'm like, I used to be up there. (laughs) So we're in this business class. There's three seats in the middle, two on the outside. Michelle and Molly are over here, sleeping soundly, having a lovely time. I'm over here with my mom and dad. My dad's next to me. My mom's on the outside seat. I'm on this seat next to my dad. My dad, um, he's really, the more exhausted he gets, the more the Alzheimer's kicks in. He's at the verge. He was already at a sundowner place where he, three o'clock in the morning, he's stacking clothes to go on a trip. Uh, he's taking dirty dishes and putting them back in the cupboards. You know, he, he's lost it. But he's functioning in some capacity because he knows that the one thing he can keep a mindset on is this is my wife, and if I stay with her, we're doing okay. Well, my mom is sitting in this chair, business class chair, all right? And it, you know, it relaxes, it, 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 you can lay down. And my mom's like, these buttons are ridiculous, and it's all electronic, and I don't know how to run the screen, and it's, uh, it's always glowing, and I don't know how to work the buttons, and I don't know how to those gone. I'm like, give me a break, woman. <laughs> if I could spank you. And, and my dad is keyed in on my mom. And my, my dad, for over 50 years of his life, his main call in life was to serve my mom. And my mom's agitated, so that triggers my dad. And my dad, phew. so my dad gets up out of his seat, and he starts walking around. Now, mind you, we're flying over the Atlantic, probably over Iceland, I don't know. All the windows are closed, rich people sound asleep. My dad's walking around going, I want to get off the plane, and he's using expletives, a GD plane. Open the GD door. And he's over at the door. I'm going, Dad, 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 no, no, no. Open the door. Dad, I can't. I can't open the door. Open the door. Where are we? Why are we here? That's a tough time. It's tough to see your dad like that. And I just said, God, would you help me? Bible says any man lacks wisdom. I said, God, help me. I don't know what to do here. God's so good. God said, tell him how much you love him and what a good dad he is and what a good husband he is. I did. I said, you know, dad, you're an amazing husband. I, I've learned how to be a husband from you. you you're agitated because mom's agitated and you care for her. And I just, 
you're just such a wonderful dad. I started going through the list of how he'd given up his career because mom didn't want to move to Korea for dad to get promoted to admiral. And he stayed in Coronado to take care of his, his uncle who also had senility, maybe Alzheimer's. And my dad served people his whole life. There was always an empty seat at our dinner table to bring in somebody who was hungry. My dad, there was never a savings because he was always taking care of somebody. I said, Dad, you're just an amazing man. I said, you've been a great father. And he, he was calming down, and we went over, we sat down, and I just started talking to him until he fell asleep. And then we, we, we get to Ephesus, and this is why I share this story with you. When Jesus was on the cross, and he was dying, he had seven last statements when he was on the cross. And one of them was, he looked down at the apostle John. And as he was bleeding and wheezing and dying on the cross, he looked down at John and Mary was there and he said, John, behold your mother and mother, behold your son. And really what he's saying is, um, mom, I can't take care of you. John's going to do it from here on out. John, you got this? And John did. Jesus picked John. And I got to tell you, Jesus had an ability not to see somebody for who they were, but who they were to become. Uncanny ability. That's why I had you turn to Mark 3 and Luke 9. Look at Mark 3, if you would. Mark 3, starting at verse 13, Jesus has prayed all night to select his 12 disciples. And watch this. Jesus went up on a mountain, called to him those he himself wanted. They came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. The first person is Simon. And he says, Simon, I'm going to change your name to Peter. It's kind of like, uh, you know, George W. Bush had nicknames for all of his staff. Condoleezza Rice, he had names for all these folks. You know, we have those on staff, like Emily is M-Star Cool, and Tony is uh, T-Money, and we got names for all of the staff. That's what Jesus did. He's going, okay, you're Peter, but uh, you're, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you The Rock. You're The Rock. And so that's what Peter means, Petros, The Rock. And, and he calls him The Rock. And then he turns to James and John, and, and their last name was Zebedee, James and John Zebedee. And he says, uh, I'm going to give you guys a name, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Boanerges, 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 basically it means sons of thunder. I'm calling you guys sons of thunder. It's like a wrestling term. And the sons of thunder, tag team wrestling, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And so... James and John were the sons of thunder. And you're like, you know, they're probably going, uh, why? Why did he call the sons of thunder? I don't know. Why did he do something? I don't know. I don't know. Later we'd find out. Jesus knew all things, right? He's God. So now we get to Luke 9. We, we find out why he called them sons of thunder. Look at Luke 9. We're going to pick up at verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they didn't receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? And he turned and he rebuked them. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. What spirit are you? The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
I mean, basically, James and John are going, let's just scorched earth policy these people. They don't deserve to live. They reject you. Let's cook them. Come on, scorched earth policy. Spray and pray. Let's do it. And Jesus is like, stop. Sons of thunder. And they're looking, going, I see why he called us that. That's pretty cool. This guy was, was so brash and bold, and he was actually probably 17 or 18 when the Lord called him. He was the youngest of all the apostles, and he lived the longest of all the apostles. And the reason why I share that is that when Jesus was on the cross and he said to John and Mary, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother, he died. You know what John did right after that? John moved to Ephesus, and he took Mary with him to Ephesus. And, and uh, that's where he ended up dying. He was actually on the island of Patmos, exiled. He may have died there. But he was in Ephesus, and he was a part of that church. And we find church writers, early church fathers, speaking of that. Amazing about John. My mother, and I share this story with you, my mother had an epiphany, uh, kind of a Christophany, a Pierce of Christ, or an epiphany, a knowledge of God when she was in Ephesus. My mother, being Catholic, wanted to go to all these holy sites and... and um, you know, it, it, Catholics are really good at venerating and, and bringing honor. And, you know, it's like, it's like Mary. I think Catholics venerate her too much. Protestants don't do it enough. You know, there's a balance in there. And my mom, uh, you know, she wanted to go to the holy site of where Mary was translated into heaven and where she lived. And I'm like, I've read the scriptures. I didn't see her. She was taken up into heaven. But I guess we'll go because I'm supposed to be the caretaker for the people I can't spank. And... Uh, <laughs> And so we, we went to this site, we drove up there, and I, I wasn't into it at all. I did not want to go to this. I, you know, it's, it just, it's another place where people are going to be bowing and venerating and kissing rocks, and I'm just not into it. I got up there, and it, it also touched me. It was a very, a very emotion, emotional moment for me. Because I saw my dad walking around with his hands behind his back, and he was out of it. And my mom knowing that this was probably the last trip she'd ever take with her husband. And my dad was three sheets to the wind. And um, mom was at this site where Mary had last lived. Now, whether she was translated or not, it's not scriptural, but if that's church tradition, it's irrelevant to me. It means one thing to Catholics and other problems. But I will say this, the site was profound to me for this one reason. John did a good job taking care of Mother Mary. Ephesus was hot and sweaty and swampy, and you go up in this hill where John took her. It's tree-laden. There's a spring bubbling there. It was beautiful. I'm like, John, you nailed it, pal. You nailed it. And he took good care of this woman. And she died or was translated irrelevant, this idea. He took good care of her. And what was so amazing is my mom was walking around, and she was really touched, and she was crying. And she was taking water out of the fountain. And, and, and when she died, I, I found some of that water and brought back this memory. But this is what happened to my mother at that site. She just said, you know, Lord, I don't know what to do with Roy, my dad. And God basically spoke to my mother's heart and said, as I took care of Mary, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. That's all my mom needed to hear. And from that point on, she was fine. 
And she would pass away, and when she was on her deathbed, she knew that Roy was going to be fine. She knew Dad would be well, and Dad is. He's, he was just at the wedding for his niece, and he was smiling, and he's very polite. And in the middle, when he was starting to make noise at a very serious part in the ceremony, my brother puts a starburst in his mouth. He's like, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> everything was good. It was all good. He's just a sweet, sweet man. He's a very sweet man. And that was John. And when Mary died or was translated, I don't want to insult my my Catholic brothers and sisters, um, John remained in Ephesus, and he was the last living apostle. And the reason why I say this is this is the last letter written by an apostle. If I were to say to you, Billy Graham is going to come to church next Sunday, it would pack it out more than a standing U.S. senator, right? Right? And he'd come in here frail and riddled with Parkinson's, his voice warbling, his hand shaking. And now we have the ability of amplification. But you would be on, with bended ear on bended knee, leaning in to hear what Billy Graham would have to say. And you could hear a pin drop as Billy Graham would utter words. And you would value those words probably more than anything that Senator Rand Paul said last Sunday, yeah? Well, they used to bring, a church tradition says they used to bring John in on a stretcher into the church in Ephesus. Last living apostle. And the church would be packed. And the children would look at their parents and they could see by their eyes that they weren't supposed to speak. And the little ones that didn't understand it were taken out. And the room was silent. And John would lean up on one arm and they'd be listening. And church tradition says that he would say this. Little children, love one another. Love one another. And then he go back down, and they carry him out. Some people are going, I traveled 600 miles to hear that guy say love one another. What a waste. No, not a waste. See, God took Peter, who was scared to death and and renounced Christ three times before the rooster crowed, even to a 13-year-old girl, and say, I swear to God, I don't know who he is. The rooster crowed. Peter was scared to death. And by the time Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, you find Peter in the book of Acts standing in front of crowds of thousands, declaring Christ to be the Savior of the world under threat of persecution. And when everyone's being killed and James has been crucified or he's been martyred, Peter is fearless. And he's a center theme in the midst of, of a swirling controversy of persecution. And he's a rallying point for all believers. What happened? And in addition, you look at John. A guy who wants to call down thunder and wipe out every person on the face of the earth who doesn't honor God. And now he's in his 90s and he's saying, love one another. What happened? They were transformed by the love of God. You see, when you look through this epistle, there are three things that we're going to find in this epistle that John wants to emphasize because he's looking at a church that is now 50 years old and has lost its love affair with Christ, and it's become very intellectual. It's like what happened with the Puritans. They wanted to do a church, you know, a city on a hill, but they, they became so enamored with their intellectual ascent, their ability. I, I'm, I'm not a Calvinist, uh, and, and I love Spurgeon, I love Moody, they were Calvinists. That's the Calvinists I dig. 
The ones I don't are this, this hyper-Calvinism. I, I remember calling a ministry one time because I liked a book of, of an author that I'd read, and I, and I said, could you send me the tape series on the book of Romans from this pastor? They said, well, he hasn't finished the book of Romans yet. I said, well, just send me what he has. I said, are you sure? There's 168 cassettes. 168 cassettes on the book of Romans? Yes. How far into it is he? It's like chapter 9. All I got to say is somebody's fallen in love with their brain and not with the Lord. And, and, and what I find in, in the 12 years I've been the senior pastor, a lot of Calvinists come into Calvary Chapel so they can go fishing and skim off the new converts because they don't have any converts in their church. And the reason why they don't have converts is because they preach double predestination, which means you're not only predestined to heaven, but you're predestined to hell. And it, it, that's it. it that, it's already divided. It's already decided. doesn't matter if you share the Lord with somebody. You can't say to someone, God loves you and has a plan for your life if you're a true Calvinist. You have to say, you might be loved by God. I don't know how they do it. It's hard. And Calvinists, are, that's why there's no evangelism. They're like, I'm not sure what to do. You want to go witnessing? Why? <laughs> and so their church is just, they just dwindle to nothing. And so they come to Calvary chapels, which, you know, we're evangelizing and they come and say, well, you know, there's a deeper way, and we've got to share with you some of this Gnosticism, this deeper knowledge of the Christian, and there's certain, and you know, the, hmm. <laughs> and if you're a Calvinist, I'm not speaking to you because you're here and you're cool. <laughs> but I am speaking to the ones that, that have that mindset. I've seen it. And my point is this. We, we come to a place where we're enamored with truth, we're enamored with truth. And that's, that's, that's Christians. They love truth, but they get so into it that John says there's a litmus test for a true Christian. He saw the waning, the, the waning love for the Lord dying in the church. And so he wrote this, this letter to infuse the spirit of Christ into the, to the church that was dying. And especially a church that was having to affect a city that was inundated with, with debauchery. And he said, there's a litmus test to see if you're in the faith. And, and, I, and I, I want to I wanna put that before you. And so as we undertake the study of this, this letter, it's not so that you have an intellectual understanding. I want it to transform our lives. And I want us to take this test. There's three things that need to be found in your life. In balance, in balance. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. You, you can go up to somebody and say, you know, you're fat. Well, that's true, but it's really not nice, right? There's no love in it. I had a guy, you know, I, I, in the mall, I went to go get my back massage because I have back problems. He goes, you've gotten larger. I'm like, sheepers. Is that what they say in China? Because I ain't going there. <laughs> but then the, the reverse is true. You can, you can say, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like the man who beats his wife, and he's just saying, honey, I love you. I swear to God I'll never do it again. Well, there's no truth in what he's saying. And he's declaring his love, but there's no truth in it. So it's just hypocrisy. He's going to beat her again. There needs to be a balance, truth and love. There needs to be that balance. And speak the truth in love. And so John is saying, all right, here's the litmus test. And I want you guys so you can discern who the Gnostics are and who these knuckleheads are so that we can see if we're in the faith. And these are the three things that are necessary for the litmus test. Ready? It's, 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 it's very, very vital that you grasp this because this is where we're going um, with the remainder of this study. 
And the three things are truth, righteousness, and love. John is going to go on to declare that he who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. And the body of this letter is an emphasis upon the three essential things that make Christianity genuine Christianity and their truth, righteousness, and love. It's a, it's a measuring stick where we can test our lives by truth, righteousness, and love. But before he gets into the, the teaching of truth, righteousness, and love, there's a prelude. And that's what we picked up in this first chapter. And this is what I want to close with. This prelude, it's the key It's the key to unlock truth, righteousness, and love. It's the key. And you need this key if we're going to move forward. Okay, is your marriage struggling? You got to have this key. Is life lost its joy? You need this key. Have you been drawn to this place? I don't know why you're here. You've been probably dragged in here. Maybe you're here because you're searching. I don't know. All the years I've been doing ministry, I know there's countless reasons for why people end up here but I'm just telling you there's a key. I can give it to you if you want it. And that key unlocks this this concept of truth, righteousness, and love. You see, the key is that there's a relationship that's necessary. There's a relationship that's necessary to manifest truth, righteousness, and love. And the key is a relationship with Christ, a oneness with Him. You see, He began by saying, That which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which our hands have handled. He had a relationship with the living God. I'll I'll give you an example of what I mean. Someone, as I said earlier, said it's possible to search through all the writings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And you can go through the writings of Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and Mary Baker Eddy and Joseph Smith. All the great moral leaders of the world and the ethical teachers of the world. And, and, and you will find most of the moral teachings that are exhorted in the New Testament found in these writings, even in a negative form. Um, and, and you can get plenty of good advice from, from these moral leaders. But one thing is missing from all those moral religious writers that you can only find right here. One thing. How? I want to do those things, but how to do it, I do not know, Paul said. Those things I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And John says, here's the key. It is a relationship with the living God. He dwells in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's why John says, I saw him, I felt him, I heard him, I touched him. Yeah, we know Jesus appeared in history. We have that intellectual understanding. We, we, we grasp that. We can put that under the heading of truth. You can study that in school. You can do that in all your theology books and have 168 lessons on the book of Romans. Good for you. And we are impressed with our, our Gnosticism. But that doesn't do anything to change us. The purpose of this life is to teach us how to rise above the evil, how to be transformed. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're not changing, you're a liar. You can say you're a Christian, but if, the, if, if there's no change, forget it. 
And the connecting point this morning is this. We can teach about truth. We can obey the truth. We can believe the truth about Christ. And, and we, can, we can walk righteously. We can stop doing certain things. You know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. And we can stop doing that. And, and you can stand up here and give a testimony. I used to smoke like a chimney, and I used to drink like a fish, and I'll tell you what, and God didn't. And I transformed, and I no longer drink, and I no longer smoke. And I stand before you absolutely cleansed of my alcoholism, my drug addiction. And I'm no longer fornicating. I've stopped all those things. And they leave this impression that, 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 that we're supposed to be impressed. Well, I got news for you. You don't need Christ to stop drinking. AA will prove that. You don't need Christ to stop fornicating or however you want to define it. I've, I've, seen, I've seen pagans who renounce Christ who are more moral than most of the people in this room. Mormons put us all to shame. Morality, if it could save us, Mormons beat us. The world can do that. That is not the litmus test or the testimony of a Christian. People are not impressed by what you've stopped doing. People are not impressed by what you've stopped doing. Here's the secret. What does impress them is seeing you do something you can't do. You know what that is? That's love. That's why John says that the third mark of genuine Christianity is love. Here's what I mean by that. I officiated a wedding. Why, why would two people spend their money to give their life to somebody else and have people witness it? Love. Why would I leave my family on a Saturday to fly to San Jose to sit with a woman who when you feed her an ice chip, the best she can do is drool it out of her chin and her mouth. And I pick up one in every 20 words that she speaks. Love. There are no rescue missions that have been founded by atheists. The Lord loves the unlovable. You do things you could never do before. I am the most selfish human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. And by love, God's made me a faithful husband and a father. By love, he's allowed me to love a woman who I'm not even related to that I would sit with on my own dime in San Jose and watch her drool. By love, people in this room on a Saturday, when most people are going out on dates, they, they relinquish their Saturdays to go and watch a special needs child so that those couples can go out and enjoy a Saturday night. That is love. By love, Ingrid Fiedler and Rolf Fiedler are in Uganda and they're being, their, their lives are being threatened so that they can pour their lives into orphans and widows in a country that's not even their own. That is love. It's not what you stop doing. The mark of a Christian is what you're doing now by the power of love. And this is the litmus test. 
this is the litmus test. And this is what we'll all be facing in the coming study of this letter. So put your seatbelts on. It's going to get intense. God wants to transform us. The world is sick and tired of Christians who testify to what they don't do anymore. The world's anxious on seeing what Christians do by the power of love. That's what God wants. It's a litmus test. Test truth, righteousness, and love. We're going to survive this test, and we're going to be better for it. It's going to be a good time together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I know that we have this understanding of, of, of what we're supposed to do, but now today we've come into this understanding of how to do it, and it begins with a relationship with God. It begins with a relationship with God. And some folks have never had a relationship with the Lord. And I would just say to the folks present right here, a relationship with the Lord is very simple. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. When Jesus died on the cross, let me remind all who are present as I'm speaking to the Lord and speaking to you. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. He was God. Nails don't hold God to a cross. What held Jesus to the cross was his love for you. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. No man took his life. He willingly laid it down in love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. That's supernatural. His love will give you the power to do things you could never do before. But you can only do that when you have a relationship with a God who is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. John knew this. He was transformed from a guy who wanted to call down thunder to one who would say, dear children, love one another. You want to be like that? You want to be gentle? The Bible says if you receive the Lord, your sins will be forgiven. And all it requires is in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Transform me by the power of your love so that I would have the ability to accomplish that which is good, which is true and which is righteous. And so, Lord, we thank you this day for that work that you're doing. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We were going to close with a song of worship, but it's 10.55, and I was a chowderhead, and I went long. So the Lord bless you and just give you that heart for love. Call on him, and he'll fill you. He'll shed his love abroad in your heart one for another. It's that love that transforms the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's a love that gives. It's a love that serves. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're a servant of all. It takes away selfishness. It transforms you. It's a, it's, it's a redemptive power of God, but it's love. In the coming days, you're going to get to know that love. And your lives will never be the same. Don't come in here to get your head fatter. Come in here to get your heart stronger. Your families will be healed. Your country will be changed. And your children will be blessed.
So come and grow in that love. In Jesus' name, amen? amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.